your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, you know, me and the lovely Joanne, we watch a lot of TV because, you know, I don't really go out as much anymore since she moved out here. I'm not at the bar every night. But I'm going to tell you, it's really upsetting me because the TV seasons are just too short. I, I get into a show like this Murder in the First, which is a great show. And I get into it. I'm enjoying it. And all of a sudden, you watch like six episodes and they say only two more episodes to the final. And it stinks because then you sit there you have to find a new show and it's just, it's awful. And it's funny, the shows that run the longest are the reality shows and they're the ones that are the worst. I mean, you know, Joanne loves Big Brother. I have to go upstairs and watch something when she's downstairs watching Big Brother because I refuse to watch the show. I, she's so into it. She's like, a, she's like a junkie. I swear she like watches the feeds. It's like, I can't be, we got home from the concert we went to last night. I'm up downstairs working on something on the computer. I go up, she's laying in bed on her iPad watching the feeds of Big Brother. So, TV shows, please make longer seasons so I have something to watch when my girlfriend watches Big Brother. So, anyway, we have a great show. We have a, we have a, a musician today. Uh, very, you know, I, as you people, you know, I love music. We have Nick Richards. How you doing, Nick? Hello, mate. How are you? Good. It's so funny. Me and Nick, Nick had to cancel because you had a meeting with the Culture culture Club, right? Yes, correct. Now, 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 how is that? Now, you've worked with them before? <clears throat> well, it's an interesting story because obviously I knew them in the 80s, and that we'll go back to that, but... Roy Hay, who's the guitar player and writes all the music, really, of Culture Club from day one, he's godfather to two of my children, so okay. we're very, very close. And um, I suppose that the big story there is they were having terrible problems getting Boy George a visa to enter the United States. Really? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, he was banned uh, for life, actually, at the time, um, through his problems in the UK you know, like, i.e. kidnapping and heroin right, yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> the normal, the normal yeah. things we all go through. Not the easiest of guys. <laughs> um, and through a political contact of mine who basically helped me get my visa status in order um, through benefit work I was doing in the music business, um, we managed to, to pull it off. <laughs> and uh, George has actually been into the United States this okay. year to do a bit of DJing and just uh, groundwork. And they will be, they're doing a few dates uh, just before Christmas here, before the UK starts, tour starts. Um, and then they're back here it for good in the summer with a brand new album that Mark Ronson's producing. And um, I'm sure my band, Boys Don't Cry, will be playing a few gigs with them. Okay, yet, cool. Yeah. So now, now you're, you're from what part of England? I'm originally from London. Okay. And, and uh, lived there for many, many years, obviously. Um my main business was there in the 80s now when you were a child were you did you know you would get to music did you because did you, were you just fascinated by music or i mean what what made you sit there and go i want to learn to play music well, well i'll tell you the story because it's absolutely true and my mother reminds me of all the time uh, my mum was seriously into pop music in the early 60s and once a week she'd go up uh, to harrods the major store in London and buy all the brand new seven inch singles that were hip and one day I was six years old and she came back with Satisfaction by the Stones okay on Decca Records put it on the old turntable bang that was it and the other record she bought that day was fascinating because it was uh, Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks and those two songs I mean that was it I mean I know I was only six years old but I 
the Kinks, man, I'll tell you, the, the Kinks were such a great band. And I, I, I mean, I know that they were huge here, but I don't, I don't think they ever got the ado in America that they should. Mm. And I mean, I mean, I remember seeing them in concert at the Spectrum in Philadelphia years ago, God. And they would just put on such a good show. It's the first time I saw a Ray Davies, I believe it was. Yes. Going to an, an audience. I never, you never saw back then, like, we were sitting there up, up high and we're like, wow, this guy's actually in the audience with these with, the, with yeah. the fans and it was amazing it's a very underrated band I think you know and I, I love all their stuff and I was actually amazingly at the end of the 80s I actually purchased their catalogue I bought and oh, really? their catalogue for about a year before I sold it on so I can actually say I owned all their masters for one year which was very very exciting that's awesome so so you're six years old you know you want to get into music yeah. now do you sit there and go I'm going to sing I'm going to play How, what do you do now as a kid do you sit there and just start annoying your mom to get you a guitar or do you start singing or what do you do well funnily enough um, I was lucky enough that my parents had a, a grand piano at the house actually um, that had been left by my father's mother. And um, I was on piano lessons very early in my life. Never knew about singing, because, you know, you can't really sing at all, can you, as a child, properly? Yeah, not I mean, really. it's like you're in a choir, you but know, it's not your voice. Correct. And, you know, and I didn't really knew I wanted to be a singer until I was about 15. And I was at a boarding school in England, a very famous boarding school called Millfield. And um, I put the very first sort of rock band together that they'd ever allowed. Okay. And we started doing local gigs and everything at 15, 16. And I was the only one willing to be the singer. Now, were you playing piano or what were you playing? No, I, at that time I really was just on stage, I'd be the singer. Okay. But, but I, I wrote most of the material that we were doing, which is obviously complete rubbish at 15, 16. Um, although a couple of the songs, funnily enough, that I wrote in that period did end up being recorded... Uh, ten years later, and on the very first Boys Don't Cry album that, okay. had, that had Cowboys on it. You know, so, so you, you had this band, and now did you just love being on stage? Were you just oh, digging it? Loved it. I loved. I loved the reaction the girls got as well. I mean, it was brilliant. You know, um, the school was co-ed, so there was lots of girls there, and it was a really fast way of attracting attention. I loved that part of it. Yeah. Now, were you? was performing in your blood like a, when you were a ham when you were a kid yeah I think so I mean my father was a failed actor okay. at, at uh, Pinewood Studios in fact his very best friends in the world were Roger Moore and David Niven okay. and Joan Collins and they were wow. all together um, at that time and of course they all went on to be big movie stars and he dropped out sadly so I think that part of it was in me and of course I was obsessed with the Stones and still are with my entire life and Jagger and, and everything else so yeah, I, I really believe it was it was in me from from the second I heard Satisfaction. It changed my life, no doubt about it. So so you're you're this kid. You're 16 on stage. Yeah. Girls are loving you. You're you know you're loving that. I mean, of course, every guy loves oh, that. Yeah. Now you're in the boarding school. Now do you have what are your plans for when you graduate? Do you go. I'm going to follow this thing or you say I'm going to go to college or what was your or university whatever. What what <laughs> was your plans? Well, my plans got disrupted pretty badly actually because we were being invited to do little shows in pubs local pubs uh, the school was in an area called Somerset which is out in the middle of nowhere in the west country I mean it's all farmland and sheeps and you know whatever and pubs and we were sneaking out on Saturdays as a band and playing these pub gigs you know for like a hundred pounds here or there 
and one was a bit far away so we decided to put sleeping pills in the housemaster's cup of cocoa <laughs> okay which i did <laughs> he fell asleep and we took we took his car and <laughs> went to the gig in a town called bristol and um it just so happens that the place was full of millfield Mar teachers oh wow great that's uh, all knew us immediately and of course we were reported quite rightly and uh, i was thrown out um a, about a week before my 17th birthday so my my education side was definitely a, an end there which is quite normal in england you know it's not like here where it just seems to go on forever the education which i think is great by the way i think y you have so many years to work in and yeah, but unless career. unless you're like a yeah. uh, like a, a 38 year old professional student well, like whatever, you gotta, yeah. you know. i know but so i i got kicked out pretty early i suppose um but i knew then i wanted to to make music and write um perform and uh, i've been doing it ever since um in in small ways but i realized that you know the chance of being a star the next george michael was also going to be you know nearly impossible i mean the luck that goes with all that is extraordinary so i did venture into buying businesses within the industry that would support me if my career didn't take off now how did you come up with that, that insight um, all through my father, to be quite honest, there he was very influential on me. He was he was an independently successful man. He had done very well in his life, and um, luckily for me, there were there were investments available for me to get into the music industry, you know, properly. Um, and w one of the the more important things that happened, and we go back to the Kinks, we were actually we purchased <coughs> a compact disc manufacturing factory in Sweden okay. <laughs> of the Swedish government for one dollar. They, they, they wanted to write it off. They wanted someone to take over the problems. They didn't believe in it. We did. So this is, their CDs weren't big then. I mean, no. We were no, almost so into cassettes. This was 1983. So CD was very, very new. And at that time, to produce one CD was costing about eight dollars per unit, so you can imagine it was insane, you know. But we—I was absolutely convinced that CD would be the next big thing, and so that the most sensible thing to do was to go around buying back catalogues. And at that time, Bronze Records was available. Jerry Bron was in trouble, and that had Uriah Heep and Motorhead and Sally Oldfield and loads of good stuff, you know, Motorhead especially. And then Pi Records, which was then called PRT, went down. Um, and we ended up buying the Pi catalog, which was the Kinks and okay. I mean thousands of you know, th things. All with the premise that none of this stuff had ever been on CD. And of course, it would go on to CD eventually. Um, and that was one of my businesses. It, it, we ended up a year later being offered so much money for these catalogues by Castle Communications. I mean, we had to sell it, to be honest with you. So we never really benefited from it um, at all. And that's why it was a very short period of my career in that. But my main business was I had bought a recording studio in London off Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. Okay, I got to ask you because I, I want to I I get the, the correction. Uh, I want to get the pronunciation right. It's uh, Maison Rouge? Maison Rouge, yeah. Okay, it's Maison French. Rouge. Well, okay. of course, as you probably know, Red House. That's what right. it means because it was a red brick building. And the most important thing about it is it was in the middle of central London with its own car park, which, of course, was 
completely amazing. It was a freehold building, so you'd own the building outright. And that was a very, very important part of the investment rather than the studio. What was great about this studio is it, it, it had two rooms, but it also had a licensed bar and restaurant built okay. into the middle of it. So it was a really social thing. So it's like one of those, uh, before they came out, it was one of those complexes, sort of. It had the studio, it had the bar, the restaurant. Oh. It, was, it was just a... It was an all-in-one unit. It was right next to the Chelsea football ground. Are, are you, is that your team? On the Fulham Road. No, it's not. So that was a difficult Who, Who's one. your team? My team's Arsenal, because I'm, okay. I'm a North Londoner. Okay. So I'm Arsenal. So that was always a bit difficult. Um, and the studio, Ian Anderson, who'd obviously owned it, Jothar Atoll, he wanted to go off salmon fishing and, and put salmon farms all over Scotland. That was his thing. So we actually bought it for what we call peanuts. I mean, it was a freehold building, though, which is really what the value was in London at the time. Um, the, the equipment inside it, this was 83, and the equipment was fairly archaic, um, but but had produced some, some wonderful, wonderful records in rock history already, of course. Um, and we got very lucky because literally the first project we booked in under my ownership and as we were refurbishing it and tarting it up, you know, was the Wham! album. Fantastic. Okay. Now, now, as you were doing all the stuff, you know, the catalogs, were you still concentrating on music? Were you still playing music? Or, or did you just sort of put that on the back burner to get all these logistically things going? It was on the back burner, to be honest with you. I was really concentrating on, on, these, on these things. But basically, because I was still a frustrated musician, Boys Don't Cry was actually the Maison Rouge studio in-house band. <laughs> it was like me and my mates getting together in certain dead time on a Sunday. Like, I mean, Studio One was available on this particular Sunday. It was empty. We couldn't sell it, so whatever. So I rang up my friends and said, come on, let's go in and make some records. How did you find the guys that you would put in the band? Were you just old school friends? You knew them from, no, from, no, the, from the boarding school? or No, no. These were just people I'd met over the years who I knew were great musicians, who I knew were available. Um... And we'd just get together really now and again and put ideas down. Obviously, I would write with uh, my co-writer, Brian Chatton, who, who was signed to RCA Records at the time as a solo artist. And he'd just, been, he'd just left Meatloaf. He'd been with them. And before that, he'd been with John Miles. And he was a great writer, um, a few years older than me. But that was great because of the experience and everything else. And uh, we just gelled as a writing team. I mean, there was no doubt about that. It was great fun. Um, and the, the, the great story about I Want to Be a Cowboy, really, is obviously the Saturday night, I'd been up all night long, not been able to sleep, watching Spaghetti Westerns, which is my favourite thing in the world. I just Do you I love, all all Leon, oh, I love all that. And I'm just sitting there, just you know, and I've got a cheroot in my mouth. And what, what is a cheroot? Because it, it, that's the thing in the video. Yeah. What, what, what is that? Well, it's like a mini thin cigar, okay. you know, that you that you chew sort of. It's okay. horrible. It's absolutely vile. But but I had one in my mouth, and I kept going, I want to be a cowboy. <laughs> because okay. I've been, you know, and uh, we sort of go, that might be a good title for a track, you know. And Brian had written this piece of music about a year before that we'd never done anything with that had this sort of harmonica pad sound in it. And it had just sat there. I'd never come up with a lyric for it and everything. I said, do you remember that? I said, yeah, let's get that out. And that day, I wrote the lyric, recorded the vocals, 
and I'd done all the verses and I wasn't happy I thought it was a bit tedious the drummer's girlfriend Heidi <laughs> was sitting in the bar waiting for him I said Heidi come in let's rewrite verse 2 and she was Norwegian so it sounded like some kind of settler right going across the plane you know so she did verse 2 to break it up the monotony of that kind of vocal you know and then I called up Nico Ramsden he came in and did all the guitar tracks it took him about half an hour we mixed it that evening and in studio two at the time it was quite funny this is absolutely true story the Everly brothers were in with Dave Edmonds recording their 1985 comeback album okay and I had obviously I had my own little office there at the studio and I was up there and Phil Everly walked in and he said, oh, what have you been up to? I said, oh, I've just been doing this song called I Want to Be a Cowboy. He said, oh, let me hear it, let me hear it. I went, oh, are you sure about this? <laughs> you know, I was like, how do you play something like I Want to Be a Cowboy to Phil Everett? Right. You know, <laughs> it was, I was sort of going red with embarrassment. But anyway, I put it on and he sat there laughing his head off. He said, this is wonderful. <coughs> I love it. So he was the first American to hear I Want to Be a Cowboy. And it's an absolutely true story. And you weren't, you didn't have a band together at the time. Not really, no, we were just a group of friends who just <coughs> come and play under the banner Boys Don't Cry. And what happened is that we would make white labels of these things. I mean, it was recorded as a six and a half minute track. I mean, it was a 12 inch club record as far as we were concerned. And we run a few white labels off it. And a friend of mine called Paul Oakenfold took He's it. He's the DJ. Yeah, yeah, he was a big DJ at the time. But at that time, he was really a promoter at at nightclubs in England but he he took a copy he ended up at the limelight club in New York City and gave it to his friend who was the DJ there who started playing it and about six months later so this is like December 85 I get this phone call from this guy in New York saying hi I'm Gary Peeney from Profile Records and, oh yeah hi and he said we've been looking searching for six months to find out who owns this song I want to be a cowboy I said well I own it he said we want to put it out in America I said are you joking you know right. said, why he said we love it we love it and it's getting massive play and all the clubs in New York it's going to be oh, alright okay. he said how much do you want I said I don't want anything for it just put it out if it's a hit ha 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 you know pay for an album and I didn't hear again from him for ages and uh, <laughs> there was no contracts there was nothing you know and then on my birthday, April 3, 1986, I get a phone call from Profile Records thinking they were wishing me a happy birthday. Right, right. And they said, congratulations, you charted at Billboard. I said, oh, really? I said, are you kidding? I said, no, no, it's gone in. And it's the first indie single to chart in the Hot 100 at Billboard for 17 years, since Casey and the Sunshine Band or something. And I said, oh, wow, where's it gone? And he went, well, it's gone in at 94 with a bullet. I'm going, 94? Because remember, I'm thinking England, right? And if you were 94, it means you've sold three copies, you know. Okay. So I don't even relate to how amazing that is at the time. And he said, oh, it's got a bullet. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, it means it's going to go up the following week. I said, wow, you know. And um, well, I was absolutely shocked, of course. And every week, the most exciting Wednesday night, you'd wait for your phone call from New York for the next chart position it was the greatest feeling in the world you know. like Christmas Eve you oh, know, when you're a kid it's just and then I'd phone my parents and phone the band and friends and girlfriends guess what it's 28 with a bullet you know all this stuff going on um, but it wasn't till a few years later I actually found out 
how it managed to do how what it did you know and it's an amazing story and it's actually it, it, there's an article about it in a book called the hitmen which i don't know if you heard of that book but it's worth checking out okay and it was when the fbi started looking into piola going on with mafia in the radio industry well, because that was, I mean, that, that was a big... It was huge. Yeah. And, of course, I didn't know anything about things like that. No, because, you know, you know it's, not, it's not like a big English mafia. No, you know, of course, it's mostly out here. And, apparently, at that time, the FBI started in investigating on this, and all the record companies, all the major labels, Atlantic, Warner Brothers, whatever, stopped using these guys. You know, like they dropped them like a lead balloon while all this was going on. And little profile records, of course, picked these guys up for nothing compared to what they were used to being paid um, and of course they actually wanted to prove a point how powerful they were and say look we can put an indie single in the top ten at Billboard and everyone's going no you can't that'd be ridiculous and they had a point to prove <laughs> to show how powerful they were you know and um, of course off it went and what's even more interesting is that the major labels got so annoyed about this that they had it blocked at some major, major store outlets from it going to number one because it was outselling True Blue Madonna at the time. And sales and airplay-wise, we were number one. The billboard was showing it at ten. Um, so it was a long, long story. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know about this for years, right, yeah, you know, as you can imagine. But it, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> so the luck that went behind that song was extraordinary. You know, without that happening, it would never have seen the light of day. Well, no the, the, the band name, uh, is it true it came from the 10CC song? Yes. Okay, because uh, everyone says different things. So I always read on guests, and so that's interesting. I want to ask you about the video. Now, <laughs> the, the song became a hit here. Where, when did you make the video? When the song was a hit here, or how did that work? The video was made. We were, Profile Records phoned us um, basically demanding a video ASAP. I think it had gone... It had gone into the top 50 at Billboard by this time. And they said, look, you've really got to have a video. MTV, you know, you VH1, you've got to have a video. So we went out literally the following day onto Hampstead Heath, which is this big park in North London. My younger sister, Jane, breeds show ponies. So she provided a horse. Okay. <laughs> we had some friends come up and dress them all up. I mean, I wrote the script for it, you know, that, that evening. And Who'd you get to shoot it? Did, it? did you know people who were... No, no, we, 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 uh, through some friends, we knew, we knew a company that, um, that made pop videos at that time. And, of course, they were incredibly expensive in those days. I mean, you could literally spend as much on a video as you did making an album. I mean, it was crazy, you know, uh, and... Basically, we, we, we shot it in a day, it was edited the following day, and that was it. I mean, as quick as possible, bum, 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 bum. And it's a funny story on that one, because um, I've become very pally, because we're neighbours, Martha Quinn, MTV VJ, and she's a lovely, lovely lady, and she told me <laughs> that when MTV first saw the video, they absolutely loathed it. Why? Um, because it wasn't rock band you know all looking cool and it was we fun uh, yes and we were trying to m mess around and, and make fun of i want to be a cowboy and blah 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 and they hated it uh, but the first time they played it because it had just hit top 40 at billboard they had to play it and she told me they had over two hundred thousand requests that day to see it again wow. and they had to playlist it um 
so that you know those that kind of luck and then when it hit the top 40 dick clark god bless him decided he like absolutely loved the record it made him laugh he just thought it was great and he closed bandstand for three consecutive weeks with playing i want to be a cowboy which back then oh. i mean that's like money i mean yeah. that's because like, back then every, everyone watched bandstand oh. and everyone that's where artists got a break because there wasn't yeah. and for an mtv band to be on yeah i mean it was a big thing it now i want to hear i read something but i want to hear it from you how you got lemmy for the video oh well i knew lemmy because it, we're going back to it, i bought the bronze records catalog right. remember so i owned the motorhead um catalog for a while and uh, we remained friends, and we, we had we had quite a few um, friends in common over the years, anyway. And I rang him up because obviously I had this Lee Van Cleef character in right. my head, you know, you can imagine. And I thought, oh, let me be perfect. This, so I rang him up, said, "Will you come and do this video? I want to be a cowboy. It's it, we got a hit in America. We got to do a video, you know." And he wasn't doing anything. I said, "How much is going to cost?" He said, "He said, make sure I got a bottle of vodka. We'll be all right." I said, "Okay." Great. That's pretty good. You did it for a bottle of vodka. That's good stuff. <laughs> so the video, the video takes off, and the song's climbing up the charts. Now, does does America beckon you guys? And are you do you want to play live? Were you? I mean, or were you a little nervous because you hadn't played since you were younger, really? And you, you, this was all in the studio, and you, it's not like you were expecting all of a sudden to sit there. You're screwing around. It's not like you expected to have a huge hit. It's like something going. Okay, we're just going to screw around. You know. Yeah. So I mean, first of all. I mean, you must have been, thousands of thoughts must have gone through your head. Well, it was a hobby. And, and the thing is, d don't forget, in the 80s, there were so many one-hit wonders. You know, there was the mass production of stuff going out. Lots of bands from England were having huge records in America, but not seeing the light of day in England. It was really bizarre, actually. But don't forget, the band I had around me were all seasoned musicians, okay? They'd played with some big, big names over the years touring to them and playing live was second nature that none of that was a problem to me it was incredibly exciting i mean they were all like oh no we've got to traipse all over america hotels planes coaches and i'm like as excited as a schoolboy you know right. I think, oh wow this is the way to see america um and had you been to america before um yes oh yeah i'd be i've been to new york a few times and i've been to la a few times but nowhere else um Oh, no, that's a lot. I've, I've been to Palm Beach once. That was it. Um, but so I was incredibly excited to see mad places, you know, that you just can't even imagine why you'd be there. Um, so I was very excited. And the record company Profile, who had this tiny little label in New York, don't forget, who suddenly had a wannabe a cowboy on their books. And their follow-up record was run DMC's Walk This Way. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, so Profile suddenly just went bang. You know, I had, they had a, a Wanna Be a Cowboy and Walk This Way rocking the charts worldwide. It was just unbelievable. So they were immediately, you gotta be on the road to coincide with the album coming out. And obviously the album was a collection of songs we'd, we'd recorded over a, a few year period, you know, that we suddenly all just gathered together. And what was interesting about that is that they were short one song and they said nick please go and do one more song for the album then we'll complete and brian and i wrote this song <laughs> called cities on fire which was a rock track and it went on the album it actually destroyed our career in america the song why well after cowboys um had you know cornered a, a marketplace 
radio was playing a, a song called Hearts Been Broken um, as the follow-up and Profile weren't happy about this they wanted us to be taken seriously and be a proper rock band and all that and they they went against what all the promoters were saying they said no we want to put cities on fire out and show them as a rock band and everything else you know rather than a much more obvious follow-up which Hearts Been Broken was to Cowboys and of course it died to death you know as these things happen I had a huge fallout with them and immediately signed to Atlantic so <laughs> now what was it like when you were touring I mean, in the oh. I mean because you're young and you're I was 26 man I, and, was I mean, and you're just you I mean I can imagine your eyes are wide open because you're going I mean what kind of venues were you playing well some were really good some were horrific as you can imagine I mean we, we, we got a bit the sad thing is we opened in a place called Spokane Spokane or Spokane? Spokane, Spokane. Yeah, Spokane. Some people say it's like it depends. You know, it, it's. I'm sure someone called Spokane in, in Washington. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was a really nice place, and there was like two or three thousand people. I don't remember. You know, and we 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 had people chasing us out of the driveway and everything else. We thought, oh wow, we've really made it. You know, um, and we, so we started off really well. But of course, the next gig we went to, there was about ten people there and throwing bottles at us and everything else. So it went from incredible to horrific within 24 hours so we had no idea w what it was going to be like was it just you guys playing or was there a few other bands or like how long a set would you play um, no we were we were sharing um, each show with a band called the blow monkeys I, okay. who had that digging your scene which right. funnily enough was done at my studio okay <laughs> as most of the records were at that time um, in fact I must go back to that because Billboard magazine rang me once in 86 and I thought they wanted to talk about I want to be a cowboy I said, no, we, we want to talk about your studio, the Maison Rouge. I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, if you look at the top 40 this week, 28 of those tracks were recorded at your studio. Well, who are some <laughs> of the other bands? <laughs> I know, it's incredible. Oh, it, it goes, I mean, at that particular time of Cowboys being out, so many, I mean, Level 42, The Fabulous Thunderbirds. How did they, find, Duran. How did they find your studio? Was it just, I mean, what made them gravitate? Because there's probably tons of studios. What well, there were, but th there weren't, you know, most of the big studios were corporate owned. And, and th the thing is, we were in a really cool area of London, the West End, with a bar and everything right. else. It, I only ever had beautiful women working there. I know that's horribly sexist, but at that time, when you've got bands like Duran Duran coming in and stuff, aha, whatever, they want to see beautiful women sitting at the bar or the desk or whatever. I don't care. That's And one of them turned out to be my wife, so <laughs> it worked. Um, and it was very, very important. And there was a great story. This is, this is how I used to market the studio. John Taylor came to me and said, Nick, we're going to be doing the new James Bond movie theme. I went, wow, that's incredible, you know. John Barry wants to do it. John Barry's going to do it, whatever. But he only uses a certain studio. I want to use the Maison Rouge. I said, okay, well, look, bring him down, and, you know, let's, let's talk about it, what we can do. So my wife did research, and we found out that John Barry lived on a particular brandy, which is very, very hard to get hold of. Okay very hard to get hold of imported the whole bit so John Taylor and Simon LeBon bring John Barry down to the studio frog march him into the bar and my wife has lined up the entire bar with bottles of his brandy and he went <gasps> we'll start tomorrow that's funny that's, <laughs> now funny that's the kind of thing that's what I call but don't forget the first big project we did was the Wham album and that went to number one all around the world okay 
So it was very easy to promote the studio as suddenly a very hit place under new ownership, wham, recording there, and blah, 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 blah. And um, it just went, and we ended up doing two Bond movie themes there, by the way. We did Living Daylights with Aha as well. And that was, it was so exciting to have John, somebody like John Barry in the studio was amazing. And it was like when the Everleys came in. I mean, it was just like unbelievable. And there's a great story about that. McCart Jeff Lynn and Dave Edmonds are producing the album and they invite McCartney Jeff Lynn from ELO yeah yeah and they invite McCartney down to to play bass on a couple of the tracks you know and unbeknown to us McCartney thinks that the Everly Brothers are like God I mean he is in a daze we're all like (gasps) oh my god Paul McCartney's coming in you know (laughs) and everyone's terrified and shaking in their boots and he feels the same way about meeting the Everly's and working with them anyway Linda McCartney bursts into the studio and we're all standing thinking oh god you know and she goes right who wants a cup of tea and she marches into the kitchen makes all the staff tea and it was like cool wow how cool is that That yeah that's like it was like oh it was fantastic it was fantastic so that was an so the one of the great things about owning a place like that and living there and uh, don't forget i'd I'd be there like 15, 16 hours a day, you know, because um, it was my whole life, the social side of it. All my friends would come there, parties, record companies would have parties there, listening back parties, whatever. It was great, you know. And the people y- that you'd end up meeting was just, it was fascinating, you know. And we, we actually, funnily enough, we did get a lot of American bands coming over at one stage. It was, um, and a few American producers. Nile Rogers fell in love with the studio, and he st- he started to remix all the chic hits at the Rouge because okay. he loved the live drum room and everything, you know. <laughs> so there was lots of that going on, of course. And he ended up working with Duran Duran as well, anyway. Um, and the, the Power Station album, of course, was actually all done at my studio, but it was mixed at the Power Station in New York, and we invented that drum sound what I call the addicted to love Robert Palmer drum sound was invented at the Maison Rouge How, who invented it? Um, it was my studio manager a guy called Tony Taverna who was a fantastic engineer and we had a purpose built brick live drum room which Phil Collins used to love and worked in there a lot Tony Thompson loved it to death I mean just and we used something called a lexicon um, and it basically it worked because Tony Thompson hit the snare in exactly the same spot every single time and it just oh that that well you when you listen to addicted to love you know that's it that was the invention which um of course went on to a lot of records now just fantastic now when you're over here performing what was going on did you have someone running the studio or what oh yeah 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 i mean i at one stage and well at all stages what am i talking about i'd have i had about 22 staff there i mean it was a large you know, complex, two recording studios and the bar and a big maintenance room upstairs and officing and everything else. Um, yeah, I always had about 22 staff at all times. And my and Tony Taverna, of course, was the studio manager, very experienced. Um, and he ra- he ran it totally for me when I wasn't around, you know. So I want to get back on your America. So you're touring in America and you're loving it. And you're hitting, I mean, how many cities, how many cities did you hit up when you were on this tour? Well, we played nearly every night for two months. So okay. I couldn't, I mean, a lot. And were you buses or flying, or how were you getting around? Both. Okay. There, there, were, coach air, there were coach trips, which I loved, because <laughs> that's the really way you could see America, you know. Um, the flying I didn't enjoy, especially over Canada, and the weather. You know, oh, 
I've never known turbulence like that. That's that, I hate that frightened me to death. Um, but we played some great gigs in Canada as well because it was also um, we were number one in Canada. There's a funny story there. We ended up playing the Saddle Dome in Calgary. Um, but uh, the customs wouldn't let our equipment over the border. Why? <laughs> there wasn't the right paperwork. I was like, I don't know. Someone had screwed up big time, you know. And uh, we ended up going to um, a music shop in Calgary <laughs> and renting all this stuff for the show, you know. And, um, I mean, things like that you just don't expect to happen, you know. None of our gear, sequencers, emulators, everything that we had going on, you know, suddenly they weren't there for a very big show at the Saddle Dome with a, a band in Canada who were, who were like the Duran Duran of Canada they were called Platinum Blonde okay. they were huge in Canada you know so it was a big big show and of course we ended up looking like a pub band you know <laughs> you can imagine the bad press we got from that but it wasn't our fault I mean it was just extraordinary you know now were you, were you getting a big following I mean like, did, you have, did you have a lot of fans I mean were people like recognizing you because I imagine from the video also because people recognize Videos were so big back then. Yes. I mean, were. everyone watched MTV. Yeah. Which we didn't know in England. You know, we didn't have MTV and stuff like that. We didn't even have Sky Television. We had the BBC and ITV, and that was it, you know. We had no idea how huge videos were. And, of course, every bar, hotel you go into, whatever, MTV's on. Right, you know? right, right. And that was the first time I saw Martha Quinn and all that crowd. Um, no, I had no idea. Um, it really depended what town and marketplace we were at I mean at some places we seemed to be really popular and the record was enormous and da 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 other places were not so good and badly chosen by by the promotion people and the tours um, I, I remember we played a few gigs behind wire meshing which I always thought was a joke <laughs> in the Blues Brothers but actually it's true right just in case people start throwing chairs at you and stuff like that and that happened we played some stuff like that um, one of the more fun gigs is we ended up playing at the Dallas Cowboys camp <laughs> at their little place, the White House. We ended up doing a private show there, which was great fun. Uh, I remember that well. Oh, God, yeah, the White House was legendary. <laughs> yes, we played that, <laughs> which was great, great fun, um, as you can imagine. And, of course, in Texas, I mean, really, we should have stayed in Texas for two months because, I mean, the record was so enormous there wherever you went in Texas. I and mean, we, the Aquafest we played in front of 100,000 people was easy top, you know, I mean, that was all great. So why we were playing certain areas, I have no idea, you know, it was a bit of a waste of time. But of course, it all did help with the album. I mean, the album did all right. It, um, it, I think it, it, it got top 50 uh, Billboard, which is, you know, fine. But of course, it didn't have the second hit. Right. Because, <laughs> Profile's decision making was extraordinary. If it had had the second hit, I think we'd have done very, very well with the first album. So after the first album, you have to bring out the second album. Now, my feeling is, were you guys really? I mean, this you it, you this song you did for fun, and now you're missing. It must have been very hard to write oh, yeah. because yeah. you never you didn't. I mean, I don't think you guys planned to like. Screw, have fun, do the song, no, and then all of a sudden, joke. boom, you have a top video, it's on the charts. So it must have been crazy for you guys going, oh, wait, what do we do now? We never planned this. It, w it was really frightening, actually, but I think 
I remember, I'm trying to think back at it, but I was I was so upset with Profile for, for Cities on Fire going out and what it meant. Um, I really was very angry about that. From all the euphoria and how brilliant everything was, for them to make a decision like that seemed extraordinary. But don't forget, there'd been no contracts. Or <laughs> I mean, this is, this right. really was incredible, you know. Which, of course, many years later I regretted because... I remember the A&R man, Gary Peeney, phoning me, congratulating me on, we've just sold your one millionth 12-inch. And, of course, we were only ever accounted to for about 300,000, you know. Same old story. But I, I remember being very angry. But a friend of mine at Atlantic Records was a guy called Tunt Jerem, um, who was a big, uh, big guy at Atlantic, and he was married to Armand Ernigan's daughter. So, you know, he, he, he say, And he'd... Um, always, he'd always said to me, if you ever leave Profile, come to us, uh, be part of the Atlantic family. And of course, that was very exciting because, hang on a minute, the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin are on Atlantic. Right. What? <laughs> you know. Um, and then, uh, so, yeah, it was, very, it was uh, a bit of pressure on making this album for them. And they wanted it very fast. I have to interrupt. I love how we say album because I, I still use that term album, yeah. and I will always use that term album. I'm, I don't. People go CD. No, no, it's an album. And, and What's and it called today, Steve? People I mean, I call it. Uh, hey, I got the CD. Or oh. now, nobody even says CDs anymore because they just they download. Oh, I just I, have a, I have a downloadable item yes. for you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but no, I love album. And I think, and yeah. you know, that's that's what the term is because that's how it started. Do you know what I really miss? I miss artwork. I was, you know, I was talking to, I was talking to a guest about that, and uh, I think it was John Easdale from Dramarama. We were talking about how, when I was a kid, it was like if there was lyrics on that on the album, yeah, yeah. that was a bonus, and we were so excited, and yeah. just you would buy in the inner sleeve. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, but the album artwork was so good. I yeah. mean, even like the Boston's album was just so fabulous. Yeah, you know, and it was it was amazing, and now. You, they see a little picture, you know, or a CD, but like the album, a magnifying glass yeah, to look the at album that was like when you were a kid, and even when you were a teenager, even when you were older, yeah. when you when you got an album, it was great because you you like it would inspect it, you'd look at it, and the back always had a cool, you know, it was oh, always yeah. and it, it made it like a story. Even cassettes yeah. would do the extra opening up, you know. Well, I mean, the excitement behind a new album if. if the Stones or Zeppelin or Yes or whatever were coming out with Pink Floyd. I mean, the artwork was all part of it, you know. And I, I actually put a lot of effort into our original artwork. And I employed a guy called Simon Fowler to do the Boys Don't Cry sleeve, um, who was George Michael's photographer. And he'd done the Wham stuff. That's how I knew him. And, the, of course, all the original artwork um, used in Europe was banned in America because it... You know, it, uh, it was me with a nude score and all that sort of well stuff. Well, that's like the Sticky Fingers. The Sticky <laughs> yeah. Fingers album. I was like, I was like oh, my God, what, what is this? There's a zipper on the cover. I know. So it was actually not used, which was sad because it was a massive part of the vibe of the record, you know. Um, and I can understand. I mean, you can't, couldn't go into Walmart and there's right. me looking like Clint Eastwood with a, a nipple showing and war paint all down the chick's arm and everything. I mean you know it was very European but sadly now of course it's all over America the oh picture, yeah. you know whatever um, but at the time they wouldn't um, but going back to the so the art again yeah the artwork was really important and the second album is actually my wife's mouth <laughs> on it and it was a it was all based around a, a very silly cockney saying called who the am damn do you think you am 
and it you know it was all that rhyming slang kind of stuff which we thought was very amusing what was extraordinary about it is that of course that particular because I want to be a cowboy by the way was a disaster in England okay I mean didn't even go top 40 it, 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 you know it just didn't happen but the follow-up who the am dam from the second album was huge on radio in England and a complete disaster in America because the Americans didn't understand it you know quite they, they just thought it was silly right you know rather than funny um, so <laughs> it was just extraordinary so suddenly we had a disaster on our hands Atlantic had paid actually had paid a lot of money for this second album I mean they had you know and who the am dam was was obviously flopping it meant nothing to them that it was doing well in England because they didn't have it for England um, that was on my own level and so we had to come up with something very very fast and in Studio 2 at the time Phil Collins was in there um, recording a, a song for a movie called Buster called Groovy Kind of Love his version of Groovy right. Kind of Love now Phil and my writing partner Brian Chatton were in a band together when they were 18 called Flaming Youth <laughs> and Brian was the vocalist and, and Phil Collins was the keyboard player okay which is weird because it, you know it went the other way around with those two but anyway so Phil's in the studio and we've got a bit of dead time and we'd written this song called we got the magic which I'd written for my wife and um, but we're never happy with the drums on it it just wasn't right and we sort of dragged Phil into studio one into the live drum area and said come on money please please put a new kit on it for us old time's sake you know he went sure man sure no problem so there he is with his headphones on, banging away to this song. And I have to admit, I did some, one of the most stupid things I ever did in my life. I had it secretly filmed. Now today, you wouldn't think of it, everyone's got their iPhones out. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Unbeknown to him, I'm filming him, you know, playing, playing drums to the track. And of course it got edited in to the video much later down the line, when it was going to come out as a single in America. And of course, Phil was with Atlantic, and he wasn't very happy about this. <laughs> and we were dead. We were dead. Atlantic dropped us like a lead balloon. Wow. Uh, the record never came out. Um, Brian and Phil have made up made up for it since, but um, it, it was very strange of him to do that. But I think he at that time he was so huge that he didn't want anything coming out that he didn't have complete artistic... Right. I mean, I, I, mean I get it. At the time, I didn't. I wanted to kill him. You know? Right. <laughs> um, I get it now. Oh, a few years later, of course, I got it. But that was the end. And um, we were, you know, dead. Dead in the water. So, so you guys, did you break up? Well, we just went on to do other things. I mean, I had the, the studios going. I, I was, you know, I had my own label legacy going. I mean, I was busy the whole time. Um, and we thought, well, we'd had our bit of luck, you know, and uh, everyone went on to do to do other things, really. And um, it wasn't till early 90s I started writing again, um, not with Brian for the very first time, but with the, the late, great Mark Smith, who was our original bass player. And we wrote um, an album, uh, some tracks called White Punks on Rap, and it, it didn't end up really going out. And that was that really was it um, until the last few years when I moved to America. So what brought you to America? Well, funnily enough, in the, the mid-90s we'd come to America. 
um, my wife and I with our three children, our three children at the time, just to check it out and just to get away from London. I just sold the Maison Rouge. I just wanted to get out of London. Why did you sell? You just you, you were just. Oh well, th- th- the story behind that is is easy. A great friend of mine, Adrian Lee, who was. You'll probably know him as the keyboard player from Mike and the Mechanics. Okay. But he was, um, and he was the guy actually uh, we did Who the Am Dam with, funnily enough. But anyway, he um, he was the first person to have what we would call a very, very archaic version of Pro Tools. <laughs> and this was 1987. And he said, Nick, the days of the big independent recording studio are numbered. Be careful. And you know, don't forget in those days, per room we were charging like two, three thousand dollars lockout. You know, I mean, it's, it was expensive to record at the studio. It wasn't like when Tears of Fears came. And Tears of Fears did the song "Sowing the Seeds of Love" with us, right? They spent four months at two thousand dollars a day recording that one track. Wow! Because they didn't give a monkey's about the money, right? You know, but so it was expensive. So he warned me then, back in '87, that watch out for all this new computer home recording stuff and it's just as good as the Maison Rouge and blah, blah, blah. I'm going oh yeah right of course as as the next few years were rolling on and when it came to 91 it was getting pretty difficult to fill those rooms and I had all that stuff and the worry and everything else and uh, Sade's producer Robin Miller um, at that stage was trying to own the recording industry in England and buying out every independent studio he could um, and he walked in with a very very large briefcase full of cash and I took it of course and um, we decided to go and give it a go in America in 95 after I'd had my first three children um, and we had three children born here during the 90s but we lost one as well in an accident our daughter Angel drowned sadly in an accident so it was bittersweet time in 99 we we moved back to London um, reeling with all the agony of all that and everything else um, but London didn't work out and we decided to come back again um, in when did we come back 2007 okay so you came back and now you moved you moved to Malibu yeah, we we've always loved Malibu. Okay, you know, and so we moved back in two thousand and seven and been back ever since. But of course, this was after nine eleven, right? Um, and before nine eleven, it was not difficult to get a visa, uh, especially uh, um, an L one visa if you've been a performer and blah 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 blah. That all changed after nine eleven. Why the Brits are held in the same mode, I don't know. <laughs> but whatever, it suddenly became really, really difficult to get visa status here. Even though three of the children were American citizens, it, it didn't matter. It, they were irrelevant, actually. Um, so I had to start coming up with with ideas how, how on earth I was going to be able to stay here if this is what the children wanted. And they did. They wanted the lifestyle and the sunshine. And, uh, and I got it. You know, great. And I thought at that time I was sort of retired. You know, I was just about to hit 50 and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I came up, somebody, and then somebody asked me at Malibu High School. <laughs> um, they were talking about all the teachers and staff that were being made redundant, the schools couldn't pay them, and the schools are going broke, and my kids were coming home crying because their favorite teacher's just being kicked out. And I thought, I'm go- I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a benefit together for the schools locally you know at the canyon club in agora hills because i knew the owner 
and I'll get all my 80s friends that are around and we'll put a band back together again and I called it Boys Don't Cry and Friends and so we put this big benefit show together and I had Fee Weibel from the Tubes and Terry Nunn from Berlin Martha Davis and okay. we did a real and some Roy Hay from Culture Club and blah 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 uh, so we did put this big 80s all star party together which is what I called it and amazingly a rep of Congressman Waxman was at the show started talking to me and and, uh, and he said and I said can you imagine if we had culture club you know he said, well how much money would you make from that for the schools I went oh millions you know went, oh so what's going to happen and I told him about my problems and that I'm here on a tourist visa I have to keep coming in and out in and out in and out he said um, let me see what I can do so uh, I, I invested into the benefit work um, I invested quite a lot of money to form my own corporation, MicroRich, which owned my publishing, but at the same time was financing these benefit shows for local public schools. Uh, with this banner, 80s all-star parties, and I had Richard Blade and Martha Quinn okay. hosting them, and all that, you know, it just grew and grew and grew, basically. And through that, I was able to get my visa to be able to stay here. Um, of course, when one of my eldest American child, Beau, becomes 21, which is in three years' time, it's his that God-given right then to sponsor his parents in okay. forever. Well, good. But they have to be 21. We have about five minutes left. I want to talk about the new CD. Oh, goody! <laughs> you know, I mean, we saw, you had so many great stories. We didn't really get the but new CD. The, the, the ones that that's coming up. New August CD. Should we 14th? call it the new CD? Yes, I'll right. call it a new album. New CD. I'm calling it. It's coming out August 14th. August 14th. We've recorded it over the last two years. Um, the same partnership from day one, Brian Chatton, Nick Richards, writing all the stuff, with the most wonderful guy we found who's mixed it and recorded it for us called Anthony Rester, who's just done Duran Duran's new album and stuff like that. I mean, he's a genius guy, genius guy. And it's a collection of brand new material. Um, we're going to be going on the road quite a lot this year. We've got shows next month as well promoting the album. We do a lot of the Lost 80s shows talking about with drama armor and those things you know and flock of seagulls animo i mean loads of us we great fun do you look forward to go back on the oh, road i love it i mean i've done a few of these shows I, I love it because and what's great at my age each band there's so many bands on the bill it's like an old 50s kind of thing you know lost 80s you only end up doing five numbers i mean it's band right. on bind off band so you you can give it everything you've got for you know for your half an hour that you're on there we all share the same back line on off on off on off it's great fun packed we pack out the house of blues brilliant now i don't I, I think i read this are some of your children in your band yeah my eldest son jamie is the guitarist although okay. not this year he's not allowed in the country for a while he doesn't have a visa um he's just recently got married so it's very difficult for him to play now but for the last two years he's been our guitarist and played on the album my oldest daughter, Teddy Ray, did the backing vocals. In fact, she's lead vocalist on one of the songs on the album called King of Fruits, which she wrote with us, which was great fun. She's in Australia right now. Um, but my very, very youngest of seven, we have seven children, Marlo, he's only 13. He's a fabulous songwriter, and he's going to be joining us on stage at the Malibu Chili Cook-Off when we're doing a little 80s show for the Wound Wounded Warrior Project. That's uh, the, at the Kiwanis. Is that involved with the Kiwanis? No. 
I, I saw a, a thing on your Yeah, it's Facebook. at Cross Creek Road. I mean, it's the Malibu Chili Cook-Off. They do it every year. We're doing an 80s show on Sunday the 31st of, of August. You know what? Bank, uh, Labor Day weekend, isn't it? See, I would want to come to that. But that's the night I'm going to that... I'm going to the 80s concert at the Greek, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah I think it is. The that same stinks. Way. Yeah. Well, we're in Arizona the night before <laughs> at the Wild Horse Casino, which should be fun. So we've got a six-and-a-half-hour drive back down to Malibu for the cook-off. But my, my, my youngest son will actually be debuting himself on keyboards on one of the songs on the show. Are you glad they they, they followed and started playing? Three, well, two of them, yeah. I mean, two of them are great. The, oth the others aren't musicians whatsoever and have no interest in music at all, really. But um, the young, the eldest one and the youngest one, music maniacs. I mean, okay. just music, music, music. It's very exciting. What's really exciting about the youngest one is, for sure, he's a good writer. At 13, he's that's really amazing. writing so, yeah, good That's stuff. amazing at 13. Clever stuff, you know. It's very exciting. So I've signed him for my publishing company immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never know, do you, with these things? So now, now, do you guys have a website? No, w we only use the Facebook okay. official Boys Don't Cry page and Reverb Nation and things like that. I don't... I've never seen the... I've had a website before. It, it's been such a pain in the butt. You see, for me, honestly, I, people go... You see, my website is I have all my past episodes mm. on. But it's easy. I go on the Podbean. I write a little bio. I upload it. Mm. That's all it does. People go... I don't have any other info. It's just go listen to yeah. my shows, and that's but, but yeah. For a lot of times, it's hard because yet everything's changing, and for tour dates, everything changes. <sighs> it is, and the thing is, you know, we've got so many fan bases on on Facebook and all that sort of stuff. I mean, and that's just building all the time. I mean, a lot of promotion today. I mean, you know, the way record companies used to spend a hundred thousand dollars per single marketing it. You know, all those days are gone. I mean, you just got to get a load of kids, social marketing, the whole thing, and praying to God some TV show or film picks up one right. of the songs or it's so difficult and be out on the road I mean I, I went to see Steely Dan last week and Becca was up there complaining about how we've got to go back on the road again because record sales don't exist anymore you know it's hysterical but absolutely true my god if Steely Dan have got to go back on the road you know we're all in trouble aren't we you know but but research shows that every time we play and we go out over the last year or so our download sales go up massively right because people yeah people see yeah. it and they go up yeah. so uh we've got a minute left um we're gonna have to close but do you plan to come out with another album after this are you gonna are you gonna keep writing do you is it something you look forward to or you're not sure yet i'm really not sure i mean it depends how this does obviously if it doesn't do well i'd rather concentrate on my children to be honest especially marlo and i've got some great ideas which i won't talk to you about on air but some great ideas that i'm putting together with him for a, a they are definitely going to be the next One Direction, you know, Malibu Boys, um, which is going to be great fun. I think if this album dives, um, other than the benefit work, which I have to do, right. part of my visa status, and that's when I'll be doing the whole Culture Club thing next year as well, you know, and that's going to be huge. And maybe the album might do well after that, you know. It's a timeless thing. It doesn't matter when it sells, does it? You know, it just it's just there. Um but I am an addict, as all musicians are. I mean, you are addicted right. to being, to playing, to writing, to singing. I mean, you are. Um, so every few years, I think you do suddenly have to dip, dip your feet in again, otherwise or go crazy. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure meeting you. I love the stories. I love, I love music, and it was just great to have great stories. And uh, you're on Twitter now. I am. Yes. At Nick Richards. Yeah, I think it's Nick Richards, Wait. 1960, or Boys Don't Cry, 1986. I've no idea. <laughs> well, look for him, people. <laughs> them, yeah. So check him out. Also, people, so thank you for listening. Also, just so you know, follow me on Twitter, 
at CooperTalk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 275 episodes up there. And the latest one was actually, I did a live show uh, with Jordan Brady, the director of I Am Comic. And we did a real, it sounds like a bootleg version. We ju- I just posted off our interview at Bob's Espresso in North Hollywood. I just posted the uh, the sound off the camera. So it's sort of grainy. And it's like when you were young and you bootlegged that concert. Also, if you have an Android app, uh, if go to the Android and get my app, Cooper Talk app. Go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk. You'll find it. iTunes, Stitcher, it's Cooper Talk, one word. Send me an email. Cooper at Indy100.com. I'd love to hear what you guys are thinking. So I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my guest, Nick Richards. Also, people, don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and you'll be a healthy person. You guys have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.